Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Last month, the Financial Times ran a piece uh, outlining which companies are doing best in economic terms out of the pandemic. And the company that came out number one, as it seems to do in most polls, is the Seattle-based e-commerce Leviathan Amazon. Uh, Up until June, um, Amazon had added $401.1 billion to its market cap, which is quite an achievement in 2020. So what exactly is Amazon doing right, or perhaps in some people's minds, wrong? Uh, Brian Dumain is a longtime tech journalist, and he has a new book out called Bisonomics, uh, how Amazon is changing our lives and what the world's best companies are learning from it. Uh, the heart of Brian's uh, really interesting book, though, is about how Amazon is rethinking business. Am- uh, Brian, uh, Amazon is again a, a Freudian era, given the ubiquity of Bezos and Amazon. Uh, Brian, uh, what is at the heart of Bezonomics? Your book is a kind of second chapter or a follow-up to, to Brad Stone's The Everything Store. It's not really a history of, of Amazon as a company, but it does get to the heart of, of Amazon's seemingly miraculous business success. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. And you're right. Uh, Brad Stone, in his book, The Everything Store, did a terrific job outlining the origin story of Amazon, you know, where Bezos came from, how he built it out. But that book came out in 2013, and a lot has happened since then. I mean, AWS, which is Amazon's cloud computing business, didn't really exist back then, and now it's the largest cloud computing service in the world. Uh, Amazon uh, didn't have Alexa back then. Alexa is now a, a crucial part of the Amazon ecosystem that it's trying to create, sort of an operating system for our lives. And I felt that this company was growing so fast and so many different areas that we needed to have a book to explain what is it they're doing exactly? How do they operate? What are they thinking? And where are they going? And that's what I set out to do when I uh, wrote my book, Bathonomics. So Freud famously asked, what do women want? You ask in your book, what does Amazon really want? What's the answer, Brian? Well, that's a tough one, Andrew. But I came to the conclusion that Jeff Bezos wants to run the smartest company in the world. And by smart, he means integrating artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning, Uh, into the operations of Amazon. I mean, one of the most fascinating things about the company is, you know, Google and Facebook, uh, Microsoft, they're they're all very good at AI and machine learning, but Amazon is ahead in terms of 
integrating this into the physical world. Uh, the, you know, with Alexa, you can operate your uh, television set. Uh, you can stream music. You can run your home security system. You can talk to it in your car to order a cup of Starbucks on your way to work. Remember those days, Andrew, when we used to drive to work? But in those circumstances, you can do that with Alexa. So he wants to create the smartest company in the world, so smart that we want to use Amazon in anywhere where our lives touch the internet. Yeah, and I'm quoting you here, and this is both, I guess, from Amazon's point of view, thrilling, but also perhaps from some of our points of view, rather chilling. You say, you write that, that, that Bezos wants Amazon to become the smartest company the world has ever seen. And the core of that intelligence, you suggest, is, is, is bound up in, in a metaphor, or perhaps it's more than a metaphor, of the flywheel. What, why has the flywheel become the heart of Amazon? Most people think of Amazon's goals as, as just always making the customer happy. You acknowledge that's part of it. But you add the flywheel element to the to 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 the theory or the the ideology almost of of of, of bezonomics. Absolutely, Andrew. To help understand the flywheel, I'd like to take you back to a time that's not unlike today. Uh, back in two thousand and one, Amazon was a high flying dot com stock, uh, and then the dot com bubble burst. Its stock price went from $107 a share down to $6 a share. Barron's Magazine had a story entitled Amazon.bomb. Some Wall Street analysts were predicting it was going to run out of money by the end of that year. And then 9-11 hit and the economy tanked. So Amazon was in real trouble and Bezos had to find a way out of it. He invited this management consultant named Jim Collins. I've known Jim for years. He's one of the smartest uh, management consultants I've ever met. And he was just coming out with his book, uh, Good to Great, which went on to sell 5 million copies worldwide. And in that book, Jim talks about the flywheel. Well, Bezos called Jim up to Seattle to meet with him and his board. And in that meeting, Jim explained the flywheel concept which is, yes, you focus on the customer, but you have to think about what you're doing in terms of a flywheel. He said, in bad times like this, don't react to bad news. Put all your focus on building up a flywheel. And a flywheel is a virtuous cycle, which builds its own momentum. And during that meeting, Bezos sketched a picture of the flywheel. And in his interpretation of the flywheel, You start with the customer. You do everything you can to make the customer's life better, cheaper products, faster delivery. If you do that, you attract more sellers to your site, which increases sales, which gives you an economy of scale, which frees up cash to lower prices for your customer or or speed up your delivery system. And that attracts more customers, which attracts more third-party sellers, which gives you economies of scale, and the cycle starts turning faster and faster and faster. And Bezos used this flywheel to dig out of that hole in 2001, and it really got the whole organization focused on the customer and what to do and how to do it. When decisions were made, it was, did it fit into this flywheel paradigm? 
Now, the other thing I, I learned when researching my book, and I was able to spend some time at Amazon headquarters in Seattle interviewing about a dozen of their top executives, is that more recently, they've applied artificial intelligence to the flywheel. So it gets smarter and smarter on its own, and it moves faster and faster on its own. And I interviewed Jeff Wilkie, who's the number two at Amazon. And a lot of people think that if Bezos left Amazon, Wilkie would take over as CEO. And he runs global retail operations. He runs Whole Foods. Uh, and he runs logistics. So I said he's like the the, the Tim Cook, if you like, of uh, Amazon. Andrew, that's a great analogy. He's like the Tim Cook of Amazon. And Wilkie told me that they used to sit around once a week, uh, either in a room or on the telephone with 60 top executives at Amazon, and they'd figure out, you know, what are their best selling products? How many should they order? What warehouses should they ship them to? What sizes, what colors, et cetera, et cetera. And over the years, Wilkie has integrated artificial intelligence, machine learning into that decision-making process so that more and more of those routine decisions are being made by machines, which allows Amazon to make those decisions very quickly, very efficiently. And that's one of the reasons they were able to respond so well to the pandemic. I mean, you mentioned in the opening of this interview how uh, you know they were considered one of the winners in this pandemic, at least economically. And one of the reasons that they were able to take this 26% surge in demand in the first quarter, that's an extra 75 billion in sales, and hire 175,000 frontline workers, uh, was that computers were making a lot of the decisions. And they knew which essential products to order, where to ship them. And their algorithms even helped hiring that many people in that short amount of time. So Amazon's stock has soared during the pandemic. Bezos alone, and this this is mind-blowing to me at least, Andrew, during the pandemic, his net worth has increased by $57 billion. So his total net worth is $171 billion, making him the richest man in the world. And that's after last year, giving his ex-wife Mackenzie $38 billion in a divorce settlement. No wonder he always looks so happy. Um, <laughs> so, so, Brian, what you're, you're, you're saying, and this is both, again, exciting but also chilling, is that Amazon has essentially become a real-world version of Google, that the, the algorithms, and I'm quoting you here, are becoming the company. It's a big data AI company. If indeed, as you suggest, uh, Bezonomics, for better or worse, will or has to become the future of business, what does that mean? Firstly, for our privacy and surveillance, you know that uh, Shoshana Zuboff wrote her best-selling book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Shoshana was on our show. It seems as if Amazon is the vehicle, the the model of surveillance capitalism. What does that tell us about the future of privacy and indeed of surveillance capitalism? Well, there are huge issues around privacy and surveillance when it comes to Amazon. So far, Amazon has been 
for the most part, somewhat of a good citizen. They, they act a bit like Apple in terms of protecting their customers' privacy. They hadn't been selling the data to third-party sellers. But over the last few years, they've really been ramping up their advertising business. That's when people advertise mm -hmm. their products on Amazon.com, which means they're starting to share that data with third-party sellers. And I, I really worry that some of that uh, safety that Amazon had promised in terms of customer data will be compromised as we go forward. That's one big issue. Another big issue is facial recognition. And Amazon has one of the best facial recognition systems in the world, and they had been selling it to law enforcement agencies all over the world. And just recently, because of an outcry mostly from their employees and, and somewhat from the public at large, they've agreed to stop selling their facial recognition software to law enforcement agencies until some sort of sensible regulations can be established. But whether those regulations can be established, who knows? And even if they are, Will they work? So that's a threat as well. Um, and perhaps a third, and maybe it's the threat of biggest concern, is that more and more Amazon is just going to know everything about all aspects of our lives. Um, I mean, Google might know what we search for, and Facebook might know uh, who we socialize with, but Amazon you know, knows our financials, um, knows what music we listen to at home, knows what television shows we watch, knows what we buy, uh, knows where we drive, uh, knows um, uh, if their healthcare business, which we can talk about in a little bit, gets off the ground, we'll know what our health is. Uh, so I think the concern there is they're this omnivorous, AI machine that's going to know more and more about almost every aspect of our lives. And that, to me, is potentially scarier than even a Facebook or a Google. Yeah, it's very chilling, particularly given the crisis at, 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 at Facebook. We'll talk more about the antitrust issues around uh, Amazon, perhaps at the end of this conversation. But I want to come to work. You didn't mention in, on, on the surveillance front Amazon's practices of watching its own workers, which they also seem to be pioneering. What does bezonomics and its inevitability, for better or worse, tell us about the future of labor, Brian, in, the, in, in, in an increasingly algorithmic 21st century? Well, Amazon is one of the top companies in the world in terms of automation. And I spent time in an Amazon warehouse while I was doing research for my book. And one of the issues, of course, is that it's hard, terrible work. I mean, it's, it's long hours, it's backbreaking, it's monotonous, uh, and no one would really want to do that job for a long time unless they had to. And, you know, Amazon needs to reform that work in some ways, and they've been trying, they've raised the wages for their workers. And now with the pandemic, they've pledged $4 billion to make the workplace safer for their frontline workers. Um, but the problem I point out in the book is greater than that. And it's a slightly longer term problem, which is that within a few years, 
a lot of those warehouse jobs and delivery jobs are just going to disappear altogether. I cited a McKinsey study in my book, which said under the worst case scenario, by the year 2030, which is only a decade away, uh, automation could displace as much as 30% of the entire global workforce. And that's an astounding number. That dwarfs the job losses during the pandemic. So what might happen is, for just as one example, uh, in Amazon's warehouses, they're already highly automated, but there's one human function that robots can't do, and that's the picking and stowing of the goods that come into the Amazon warehouse. Amazon, by one estimate, sells 600 million different products. So you can imagine they're coming in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, materials, and robots have a really hard time distinguishing between all of those items and picking the right one. But I also learned that there are startups and there are big companies like Amazon working on robotics, and they call them picking robots, that are going to be able to do this task. And once that happens, uh, the hundreds of thousands of frontline workers in Amazon fulfillment centers, and, and as well as their drivers, and we can talk about uh, self-driving delivery vans as well as a th being a threat to employment, um, might be out of a job. Uh, it's 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 kind of chilling. There's a there's a warehouse in China run by an online retailer named JD.com, and they ship out 200,000 packages a day, and they have four employees in their warehouse. That's how automated it is, and that's a picture of uh, where the future is headed. That's very chilling, Brian. But equally chilling, perhaps even more so, is. The implications of Bezonomics on, on politics. You 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 mentioned, of course, Jeff Bezos's uh, absurd wealth. You also talked about his healthcare initiative or the Amazon healthcare initiative, which Bezos is pioneering with Warren Buffett, which seems, in my mind at least, to rival the state, the U.S. state. That is, in terms of its. Uh, healthcare initiatives, which tend to be mired in inefficiency and political controversy. To, to what extent, in your mind, will Bezonomics almost inevitably result in uh, entrepreneurial barons like Jeff Bezos having more money and power than the state itself? Andrew, there's a really interesting historical parallel to what you just said. Um, if you go back to the days of President Teddy Roosevelt and the trusts in this country, which were huge monopolies, uh, Roosevelt broke them up, not because they were hurting customers, which is the test today of our antitrust laws in the United States, you know, is a company's behavior hurting the customer, but because he feared they had become more powerful than the federal government. So, and if they're more powerful, you can't really regulate them. So he broke them up. Uh, whether that was a good solution, it's hard to tell because when he broke up Standard Oil, which was J.D. Rockefeller's company, uh, it, the four or five smaller companies that, they, that resulted from that breakup grew up to be big and powerful themselves and made J.D. Rockefeller even richer than he ever had been. So 
it's right now there's a huge move against Amazon in Washington. As a matter of fact, Bezos, along with other the, some other CEOs of the big tech companies, are going to have to testify at the end of this month about anti-competitive practices. Um, part of it is that people are scared of the tech platforms because they can't understand them. And that's actually not a bad reason because I think these companies are getting so big and so sophisticated that sometimes the people running them don't really understand what's going on. It's sort of the black box phenomenon. You know, you create these incredibly elaborate algorithms, and if they're AI algorithms, they keep getting smarter and smarter on their own, and pretty soon you don't know what they're doing. You don't know why they're making a certain decision. Uh, I profiled an entrepreneur who sold on Amazon in my book, and Amazon had given him a loan to buy inventory for the holiday season. So he was starting to buy his inventory. And all of a sudden on his dashboard, on his computer, uh, Amazon sent him a message saying, we've eliminated your line of credit. And no explanation, you know, no warning. Uh, it was just some algorithm looking at some data somewhere and deciding that suddenly you know, this guy was credit worthy on Thursday, but he's no longer credit worthy on Friday. And Brian, so is is finally is 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 the solution? You you have a, a final chapter or a later chapter in your book you call the rise of uh, hipster antitrust. Is the solution antitrust, or do we do we do we need, given how revolutionary Amazon is and how profound Bezonomics is in terms of changing not only business but society do we need something beyond antitrust here or do we just go back to the old teddy roosevelt uh solution of, of breaking these huge companies up uh, andrew that's that's a great question and i think we do need to go beyond antitrust antitrust with big tech has not been that successful look what happened to the microsoft case right the government spent 10 years trying to prosecute Microsoft on antitrust issues and nothing happened at the end of the 10 years, basically. So often the governments are behind the technology. I think what's more important is instead of focusing on antitrust, we should focus on regulations that lead to more transparency. I think there have to be ways to understand what these companies are doing. They have to share more information about what they're doing so that... Open the black box, Brian. Yeah, open the... Great analogy. Open the black box. So that people like this entrepreneur I wrote about who had their line of credit taken away from Amazon by Amazon mm -hmm. will understand at least why it happened. And then you can argue about it. But if these powerful tech platforms who control more and more of our lives do it in secret, we don't have a chance to control what they're doing. It's a really interesting and important point. Silicon Valley and companies like Amazon have always boasted about their transparency, but I always think that companies that that that, that call themselves transparent by definition are opaque, and and <laughs> tech companies, as you've suggested, are defined not by their transparency but by their opacity. Uh, Brian, finally, uh, you're transparent. You're not opaque. Uh, your book, Bezonomics, is an excellent read. I suggest everyone should read it. You, like everyone else, are stuck at home during the pandemic. 
to help them understand the world, to make the world more transparent rather than opaque, what should people be reading? How do we open the black box of the world? <laughs> Andrew, I'm absorbed right now in William Manchester's The Last Lion, which is a three-volume uh, work of a biography of Winston Churchill. And there are so many parallels between the pandemic we're going through now and all the crises that's bringing to us and the Black Lives Matter movement and what Churchill had to face both in World War One and World War Two and the Great Depression and just sort of the resilience that he showed. And especially when things seemed hopeless. I mean, that's what I love about the book. I mean, you read about these historic events where you think there's no way we're going to get out of the situation, but Churchill had this spirit and this fight. Uh, you know, he had, one of his famous sayings is, uh, uh, "When you find your, when you're going through hell, keep going." So I, I find the book full of wonderful tidbits like that, and I'd highly recommend it to anyone. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.